Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Made in China is a ubiquitous sticker on a lot of products because they are a powerhouse of manufacturing. But for many years they've also been a powerhouse of recycling turning all that waste into something new. But no more. China has just declared a ban on a variety of different types of inputs of waste. So we're going to look at a whole different types of ways we can turn waste from computers through to plastics into usable pieces of technology for the future and what this might mean for developing areas of new science and technology. So along with being a massively growing economy and an economic powerhouse when it comes to manufacturing of goods, China has also been the largest importer of recyclable materials, each year taking in more than 30 million metric tonnes from everywhere, from the United States through to Europe, Japan, and even Australia. But coming from July, China is going to take no more foreign garbage. It's basically banning 24 different categories of solid waste. And one of the main reasons for this is they have enough internally generated waste for them to actually be able to deal with it on their own. Plus, it's actually led to a lot of environmental and health issues in China. So to clean up their act and their country, they're no longer going to act as the dumping ground for the rest of the world. Now, technically, China hasn't actually banned all imported of garbage waste, but effectively, they've done it through by setting a limit. Effectively, they've said that they won't accept any material that has a contamination level of more than 0.5%, 0.5. And that's pretty bad because that's virtually unachievable with processing household waste like plastics. You basically have to do most of the work of recycling it to get it to that level of lack of contamination. If, for example, you took a jar, a jar from a source container, for example, or a jar of jam, if you still had that lid on it or a label, that would be rejected under the regulations, even if that label had been washed. So they've basically set an incredibly stringent criteria, and that's how they're going to weed out or prevent anyone from importing waste in them. And we here as Australians, we send around 619,000 tonnes of material each year to China. That's basically roughly $523 million worth of garbage. And that's everything from metals all the way through to plastics. Another big problem is there's a lot of actual recycled plastic being generated at the moment because we're getting really, really good at recycling plastic and at least doing a lot with it. But the problem is there aren't many uses at the moment for recycled plastic. So the price for recycled plastic is incredibly low, which means that no one is really interested in recycling plastic from an economic perspective. Environmentally, yes, but and that's why we've done so much of it. But now what are we going to do with all this leftover recycled plastic that we have no purpose for? And that's one of the challenges that also is impacting the global recycling supply chain. So what to do? The world's not going to stop producing waste, but we need to actually find out ways to recover more from our materials and and our waste and actually do something with all these recycled materials. Because we have a limited supply of resources, particularly for things like rare earth materials, metals, and stuff that we use in batteries. And with all the plastic and paper and other waste goods, we want to find a way to recycle that material and use it effectively. So this shutdown of importation of garbage from China may actually serve as a launching point for industries to develop locally in Australia and across the world. So now we're going to look at some scientific stories about ways to use, in a better way, all of that waste material. And so hopefully this action from China will help improve China's country and environmental efforts and the areas surrounding those landfills, but also act as a spur for innovation and investment across the world.
Speaking of large manufacturers, Japan is one of the world's leading car manufacturers. And even just for the domestic market alone, they sell around 4.4 million passenger cars a year. If you include the worldwide sales of how many cars they produce to be sold each year, it's around 70 million cars coming out of Japan. But researchers in Japan, spurred on by Japanese government legislation, have been looking at how you can more effectively recycle all of that material that goes into making a car. Now, in general, places across the world mandate the recycling of cars, and Japan is no exception there. But generally what happens is that the car is just lumped together, crushed, broken down, and melted down, literally. And normally what's recovered is mostly just the iron. Now, cars are, for the most part, steel and aluminium and a mix of other materials, but it's really that iron that's mostly recovered because it's the simplest one to collect and the largest percentage of volume. But the problem is, when you're making high-grade steel, iron is the simple part, the easy, the cheap part. It's the other rare specific alloying elements, such as manganese, chromium, nickel, and molybdenum, that aren't generally captured. And that's really the difficult part that makes special steels exactly having those special properties that make them super strong and lightweight. So researchers from the Tohoku University in Japan have been looking at ways to help get better yields to recycle more of that car rather than just going after that scrap iron. To go after those all those alloying elements as well. And what that could be potentially beneficial, not just for car makers, but for steel furnaces, helping them as well to not only save money by buying less materials, but also cut greenhouse gases. So when the researchers analysed the stuff left over from breaking down a car, they found that that a specific type of materials, magnesium, chromium, all the other different elements in them, if you think about not what the car originally was, so making recyclable material for another car, but rather saying, well, if we have this composition in total for the entire car, what is that best aligned to? And what they've found is that, well, that sort of lines up with steel produced in an electric arc furnace, or EAF steel. And the percentage breakdown really perfectly matches up to that. In fact, if you use recycled car material as your source, you can get about 10% material saving for electric arc furnace steel manufacturers. And whilst that may not sound like much, that 10% saving is actually the most difficult 10% because it's all those rare and exotic materials, not just the lump of iron. So what these researchers found is that the steelmakers could save around 15% on alloys. That's in dollar terms. And if they did that, they could also make a trade-off and reduce the actual global carbon footprint of producing that steel by around 28%. So that's incredible. That's $287 million a year saved just by using these recycled car parts and by cutting down as well greenhouse gas emissions by about 30%. And that's a pretty interesting concept. So instead of just recovering the iron and using that or trying to reuse the recovered mirror materials in another car, by saying, well, no, 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 let's break down this car, make sure we capture all those rare alloys, we can then produce a different steel for a different purpose, but much more efficiently. And that total life cycle of a material is a much larger way of thinking about the way we use steels and alloys. So this is some great research done out of Tohoku University in Japan, and it gives an economic and environmental justification for taking a little bit of effort to recycle your materials, because it can help other industries save time and money, as well as help out the environment. 
But if we do all of that, we still need a nice automated way or a faster and more efficient way of breaking down the car to get out all those different alloys and elements. And that's where we're going to look at some new and innovative ways of getting out the materials from scrap next. So going away from cars to another ubiquitous part of modern life, and that is mobile phones, cell phones, smartphones, you name it. And globally, at least in 2017, over 1 billion phones were sold which is a terrifying number to think about from a pure volume of materials perspective. And the problem is, most modern phones, ignoring the battery, which has some lithium in it, and other fancy metals in all the circuitry, we also have plastic casing. And the problem is that we don't have a really efficient way to try and recycle phones. And researchers from the University of British Columbia in Canada have been digging into a way to help achieve the idea of a zero-waste cell phone. And one of the most commonly discarded parts of the phone is, of course, all of this plastic housing and casing. Whilst we can recover the metals easy enough and the lithium is a bit harder to deal with in the battery, but we're working on technologies for that. The plastics has been a real bugbear for researchers to try and find a way to break it down efficiently. What these researchers have developed is a new and very efficient way to separate out fiberglass and resin that sort of binds it together. And by doing that, actually make a really quick and efficient way to sort through and recover some of that really just often discarded plasticky waste from smartphones. Now, this research was led by UBC urban mining engineering professor Maria Holushko and her PhD student Amit Kumar. And what they were focusing on was a way to recover waste material from all the circuit boards that go into your mobile phone. Now, whilst we melt them down typically and recover the metals, the plastic resin and the fiberglass is generally either dumped in landfill or burnt, either way leaching hazardous chemicals out into the groundwater, soil and air. So what to do? Well, Hosrusko and Kumar developed a gravity separation method by using the different densities of both the fiberglass and the resin, they could actually filter and drain out and end up with leftover and melted off fiberglass and resin. And they did this in conjunction with a recycling company called Ronin 8 in Richmond, British Columbia, that also is already doing this kind of work anyway. So this new method will be built into practice in industry almost straight away. But importantly, this method not only separates out the resin, you can actually start using it for other purposes. The fiberglasses now can be used for installation and other, and other new building material products. And the idea is, hopefully, you can actually get enough of it to be able to generate a new printed circuit board, which is great because then you've got a closed loop for the production of mobile phones. Now, one important part you need to check when you do all of this is that you don't get any metals leaching into your fiberglass. And importantly, they found that there was no significant levels of leaching from lead or other harmful toxic metals into this fiberglass. And so that's a good and great way to actually make use of what is often a discarded piece of the mobile phone, even after it's recycled. This is some good work being done out of the University of British Columbia. Now, as one of the byproducts of the oil revolution in the 1900s was the creation of the plastics industry. And one of the most common plastics is, is polyethylene tetraphthalate, or PET. And currently, PET doesn't really dissolve or degrade quickly 
in the environment. In fact, it takes hundreds of years normally for it to do so, which is problematic when we have island-sized garbage patches in the various oceans and plastic all over the place. And ever since it's been around in the 1940s, we haven't really come up with a good way to actually deal with all this plastic waste. But a team of international researchers, one group from the University of Portsmouth and another group working at the US Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NERL, have been looking into a way, or rather an intricate way, to enhance an existing way of breaking down this PET. Now, since PET's only been around since the 1940s, it's really quite surprising that anything could have evolved to really respond to it. But deep in the guts of a waste recycling centre in Japan, a bacterium has evolved a natural enzyme, which seems to be very effective, or at least reasonably effective, in breaking down PET as a food source. Now, this enzyme is naturally occurring. It's being produced by this bacterium, and they use this enzyme to basically eat PET, much in the same way as bacteria can eat everything else. And that makes it really, really incredible, because it can break down and turn that PET into something usable. So they took this weird, odd enzyme inside this bacterium. It's called PETase. And they analysed it in a ultra-high-resolution beamline. Basically, they shot photons at it really quickly and observed what happened using a synchrotron. And they could build up a really intricate 3D atomic structure of this enzyme, PETase, in an incredible level of detail. And that helped them model and understand it. And once they had that model and understanding, they could actually make some tweaks to it. Because they realised it actually looks very similar to cutanase, which is uh, another natural known polymer. But it has some unusual features to make it more open as an active site, to enable it to be human-raid rather than produced from natural uh, processes. So what they did is they took this PTETase and they mutated it to make it more like a cutanase. And they just wanted to see if maybe that, that was the origin for how this uh, PETase evolved in the first place. So it was more like a proof of concept rather than anything they wanted to expect, kind of like the double-blind part of the trial they were trying to analyse. But what they then found is that this mutant PETase was actually even more effective at dissolving and consuming the PET than the original. So they had stumbled onto an even more powerful enzyme for dissolving PET. And not only could it dissolve PET, it could also dissolve polyethylene pheridone carboxylate, or PEF, which is a biological-based substitute that's commonly used for PET plastics for bottles. So the best part about this news is both the PETAs, the naturally occurring one, and the mutant that they made that's human-occurring, or can be created synthetically, is all of these enzymes can be produced in the same way that we produce biowashing detergents or biofuels at the moment. We have the technology to produce this, and we already have the industrial-scale production lines for making it. And if we could develop other enzymes to tackle other types of substrate plastics like PEF, PLA, or PBS, we could melt down all these plastics very, very efficiently and quickly into just the raw materials and more sludge that we could then reuse for other processes. And that's absolutely incredible. So to think in the hearts of a Japanese recycling center, a bacteria through evolution or through chance, developed a way to break down plastics that it was surrounded by and turn it into food. And it only did that in around the 60 years that PETs existed. And now we actually have ways to harness that same idea 
and turn it into a large-scale industrial process for recovering plastics of all different types. So this is some great work being done at the University of Portsmouth and NERL. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Green Point. Ways to recycle materials from mobile phones, from cars, and even leftover plastic bottles. And how we can help tackle the looming crisis in global recycling as China starts to clean up an environmental act. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.